Series one of the Disabled Debrief podcast is sponsored by Diverse Educators. Co-founded by Benny Cara and Hannah Wilson, Diverse Ed began as a grassroots movement that has the mission to celebrate the diversity as well as to amplify the voices of those in education. It has evolved into a training provider for the school system of all things DEI. Find out more at diverseeducators.co.uk. Join the conversation on Twitter at DiverseEd2020. Welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of the Disabled Debrief Podcast for Conscious Being Magazine. I'm your usual host, Lydia Wilkins, and today we're going to be talking to two representatives from the Barbellion Prize. Why is it that diversity is important when it comes to publishing, for example? We asked two of our guests today to talk about that as well as how publishing can do better. And now they will introduce themselves to you. Yeah, hi, I'm Eleanor Franzine. Um, I am a dual citizen of the US and the UK. Uh, So I was born in America, but my mother is English and I've lived here for 11 years now. Um, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was three. So I have had it since for 28 years, 29 years. I'm very bad at maths, but a long time. Um, And I'm currently pursuing a part-time PhD at Birkbeck in English literature. And I also work part-time at Haywood Hill Bookshop in Mayfair. Uh, and I was a judge on this year's Barbellion Prize panel. I am Kat Mitchell. I am a lecturer in publishing and I'm also the program leader for the creative writing and publishing degree at the University of Derby. Before I did that, I used to work in publishing. So I worked at Penguin Random House for around four years, doing various kind of marketing and publicity roles before becoming a freelance publicist. Um, And I also currently am researching disability in the publishing industry too. So last year I did a research project called Access Denied, which was all about employees and job seekers who are disabled in the publishing industry in the UK and what the barriers were that they were facing. Um, And also I am a disabled woman too. Um, I have an acquired disability. So I acquired mine around 10 years ago, although I was kind of quite obviously predisposed towards it for my whole life 10 years ago is when it sort of really kicked in and and affected me on a daily basis so kind of that has really informed my my career and my research interests and also the reason why I'm involved in the Barbellion Prize too so I was a judge last year and now I, I don't know what we call it officially but I sit on the kind of committee behind the prize and do this sort of background work. How did you both originally become involved with the Barbellion Prize? Yeah, so so what happened was um, Jake Goldsmith, who is the prize's founder, he got in touch with a colleague of mine because she had been working on a disability-related project and asked her to be involved. 
but she had an awareness that she wasn't disabled herself so felt a little uncomfortable being a kind of a judge or involved in the prize at, at that level um, so she put him in touch with me um, and and I was a prize judge that first year and, and now as I said sort of just helped with kind of the admin and, and advice and and some of the publicity work I give advice on as well uh, with my career background um, and yeah, it's I, it's an incredibly important prize. I was um, very pleased to be asked to be involved. I think it's very, very important. It does still feel, even now, like disabled voices and disabled writing are very much on the fringes. They don't feel part of mainstream literature. And I, I think they really need to be celebrated. Um, and we need to kind of get that work out there and, and sort of make it more central to the publishing industry. Because at the moment, it feels like there's not enough of a concentration on those kind of stories. Um, and that's really problematic and, and potentially quite damaging in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I became involved um, actually through CAT. So I um, became aware of the Barbellion Prize in its first year because I was focusing on disabled authors and their writing in part because uh, I was working on a memoir. I still am working on the memoir. It's just um, taken slightly taken a backseat to some other things. Um, but I was working on a, a piece of writing about my own experience as a diabetic woman, as someone who is trying to be a feminist in the 21st century about the kind of conflicting messages uh, that we tend to get as women and particularly as a as a diabetic woman you know you can you can eat what you want you should love your body but also you should take care of yourself and not have high blood sugar all the time and um, the, the difficulty of kind of dealing with all of those mixed messages at once really inspired me to start writing about it about the experience of being diabetic and so my, my Twitter was kind of awash with um, disabled writers and disabled activism and the Barbellion Prize obviously came up. So I followed it with great interest during its first year. And then just after the first winner was announced, I think I contacted Kat who I knew through the kind of publishing book selling publicity network of, of, of Twitter, as you do. Um, I think I emailed Kat and said, you know, would you be interested in having me judge next year and honestly never ever expected to get a response let alone a, a positive response I was just I think I was in a new year's mood of just you know contacting people and seeing if um if if my gambles would work out and Kat got back and said yeah we would we would love to have to have you um and and got put me in touch with Jake who's the prize founder so I think what really drew me to the prize was how new it was and how groundbreaking it felt. Um, I mean, disabled people have been existing and writing and creating art and living their lives ever since human beings have existed. And yet the, the focus of this prize is, is new. I don't think there's ever been a prize that focuses on disabled writing. And uh, I loved that and I just wanted to be part of it. That was really what drew me. You've both kind of touched upon the next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why is it that representation when it comes to disability and diversity is important? Why, why is it that we need it in publishing? It's really interesting the way that you phrased your response to the first question, both of you. The way you expressed it, it's almost 
you I had the impression that you were both suggesting that it's more important than just I write about my own experiences therefore it is important yeah I mean I think from my perspective certainly as someone who's been book selling um for a for a long time it it isn't just about representation representation is really important but it's it's like step one tiny baby step one um, it's not enough just to have people be vaguely aware of disabled characters or disabled writers. It's not a monolithic experience. And I think this is kind of more apparent in the way that the industry is starting to deal with people from other backgrounds and identities. So the idea that the Black experience in Britain isn't monolithic or the queer experience in the 21st century, not everyone has the same queer experience. So um, my sense or my my general like feeling about boosting the writing of disabled authors is that it's important to have this breadth of awareness and understanding. And I actually have a really an example of this that's really stuck with me. One of the books that I read this year for the prize was called What Willow Says, uh, which is a novel by a woman called Lynn Buckle. And it's about a woman whose granddaughter is deaf. Um, so it's written from the, from the grandmother's perspective and she knows some sign language. She communicates with her granddaughter through sign. Um, but there were things in this book that I had never known, uh, things like home sign, where it's not sort of standard British sign language. You have your own private sort of vocabulary of signs that you use to communicate with you know, close friends or close relatives or people that you live with. That, that, you know, some people's whole reality is that, and I don't know anything about it. And it was brilliant. It was, it was this whole rearranging of the way that it's possible to view the world. You can have your own word for this kind of tree or that kind of tree. That's, that's where the, um, that's where the title of the book comes from, what Willow says. Um, but I can't imagine, you know, being faced with that possibility and not wanting that kind of beautiful expansion of how you can see the world yeah I think I'd agree with everything Eleanor says there and and I actually need to pick that book up now too um for me yeah representation is important for so many reasons and I think I can start with the kind of personal ones so you know as I mentioned before I got sort of quite ill um around just over 10 years ago now um and at that point although I'd had some issues, you know, sensory issues, some some pain issues through life since I was a child. Never anything that would have disrupted my daily life on on the kind of severe in a severe way. Um, but ten years ago, it sort of hit me really hard. I ended up in hospital. It was absolutely terrifying, and because of the nature of my pain, which was centered around my chest, so I got very severe sudden chest pain. Um, I really thought I was going to die and it was very very scary and it was a horrible experience and all I could find on that topic were kind of self-help books and that wasn't really quite what I was looking for and there wasn't really anything that quite spoke to me um, and so what I wanted instead was 
was literature, was, you know, stories, beautiful writing, art that could reflect back to me the kinds of things that I was I was going through. Um, and I, I didn't find that at the time because that was really how I'd processed the mental health issues I'd had when I was younger. You know, I dealt with quite severe depression. I'd read things like The Bell Jar. It's obviously not a self-help book, but you feel recognized and you feel <laughs> like your experience is kind of validated <laughs> um, through reading things like that. Um, yeah, probably not the most uplifting read when you're feeling depressed, depressed, but but useful, isn't it? It's useful to see your experiences reflected back at you and to kind of understand that it's not just a personal yeah. thing. Other people go through it too. Yeah, I really I couldn't agree more with that. That's that um that sense of being seen that people talk about that really characterizes sort of you know quote unquote great literature. That sense that you're not alone in experiencing what you're experiencing. Um, it's so, it's like, it's 10 times as much that when you're reading about, you know, disability as a disabled person, it's because you don't, you see it reflected so rarely that when you do see it, it's like, yeah, it, it really changes your ability to process. I think I agree with Kat, the trauma, the trauma. I was diagnosed when I was three and I have no memory, really. I have very, I have very small kind of flash bulb type memories of my time in hospital. But my mother has told me stories about what happened to me physically as a child. The fact that I had to be held down to have blood taken. The fact that I cried. The fact that she and my dad had to hold me down. I mean, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's really, you know, with the best will in the world. And that was a good hospital. And and the doctors were doing their best, but the physical trauma and the emotional trauma of living in the world differently to have that reflected back to you is so affirming. It can make all the difference. Yeah, exactly. That was kind of, that was my experience and what I was really looking for and, and wanting. Cause the other thing is that you don't necessarily come across other disabled people very often. I didn't kind of, I don't know. I didn't associate my experiences with the experience of disability. I just, I thought that was a term that, only referred to people who had things that were much more severe than I had and I didn't characterize my pain and my kind of daily struggles as severe enough uh, and because I didn't really ever talk about them because people don't talk about illness they don't talk about disability it's very invisible um, and it took going to a kind of support group where there were other disabled people there also dealing with chronic pain for me to finally use that word because I felt very empowered by talking to them and realized that they all called themselves disabled and had conditions that that maybe were less severe than mine um, so yeah you don't get those opportunities to to see your conditions your experiences your pain reflected back at you very often and that's why it being there in literature is so important I also just think that like what you say about claiming the label of disabled for yourself. I really identify with that. I was extremely unhappy for, for quite a long time um, as a diabetic person without really sort of having the vocabulary to know why. And I think it was a sense of isolation um, and a sense of like, you know, no one else is like this. Cause I think with, with chronic pain and diabetes and, and other conditions of that sort in particular, you can't tell by looking at someone that they have it. Um, I mean, maybe if I'm wearing like short sleeves and you can see the like glucose sensor on my arm, but it's, it's sort of quite hard to tell just by looking. And so that sense of isolation can get so strong and, and being able to claim disabled as an identity and to claim the, the community of disabled people as like my community um, was hugely empowering, like Kat says. 
Yeah, and I, I think it sort of relates to that internalized ableism that a lot of us have where we just think we're not disabled enough to deserve the word and also therefore not yeah disabled definitely. enough to deserve like the accommodations and the adjustments and, and to be able to kind of speak up and ask for that stuff so it wasn't until I was using the word that I was able to get involved in disability activism that I was able to feel more empowered at work and I was able to kind of stand up to, for myself when discrimination happened as well. And I think that comes from those experiences of relating to other people and, you know, reading things that you can identify with as well. Yeah, for sure. Feeling as though I had like legal protections as a disabled mm -hmm. person changed everything about the way I approached my work. Um, like you say, I, you know, being able to just say, hey, can I have like five minutes extra for lunch because I need to give insulin and it takes five minutes and, you know, I'm losing time on my lunch break doing this I felt like I couldn't do it for like well over a year and it just changed everything to um to have that confidence yeah that's the thing isn't it it's the confidence and it's sort of feeling like you deserve to take up space and you know and there are other people like you and it's not just you struggling on your own I think oh, just all of that is so valuable um and it took me such a long time to find a book that I felt I could relate to and actually I only read it I want to say maybe last year or the year before, which also happens just by coincidence to be on the shortlist for the Bob Hillian Price as well, which uh -huh. is um, is still alive by Josie oh, George. Such, such um, a beautiful book. Oh yes. my god. I mean, yes. yeah, it's it's on our shortlist um, because it's so stunningly written and so piercingly articulate about what can often feel like a very kind of abstract on wellness I think mm -hmm. yeah exactly that's exactly how I felt about it as well and I think it's that idea that well it's all the problems with the kind of representation of disability in literature you know people assume oh it's sad it's depressing you know it's such mm -hmm. a kind of a narrow life that disabled people live Ugh, which obviously is not the case <laughs> um but what she does is you know yes she talks about the, her struggles really honestly which is is incredible but she also talks about the joy and beauty in everyday life you know she's she's largely at home because of her energy limiting condition and her chronic pain um but she sees such beauty in nature and you know the relationship with her son and just her day-to-day -day life and that is empowering on its own you know that's that's such an important story to tell just because it's not some big epic adventure you can have those meaningful encounters and experiences just just being at home and so that that spoke to me in a way that nothing else I've ever read really has and that was a very powerful experience for me yeah I would I would agree it is a stunning book um I think one of the things that makes me the saddest, but also kind of is the most inspiring in terms of my own writing is I have, I haven't found that book yet for diabetics, for, for type one diabetes. I don't think there is a book that is not a self-help book that is about the experience of being um, type one diabetic. I just, I just don't think it's out there. Um, so I, you know, I want to write it. Um, I would like to be that for, I would like to be the kind of Josie George of someone else, maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, but it is extraordinary. You know, lots of people have this condition. It's not new. It's um, and yet there's just this total gap in the literature, completely absent. Yeah, and I, it's that idea, isn't it, that there's only certain types of narratives that sell. There's quite a narrow view in in the publishing world in general yeah. about what sells, what people want to read, what audiences are interested in. And with disability narratives, it is the kind of 
well, the inspirational narrative, and that can be either there's someone with a terminal illness and they die at the end of the book, sort of this tragedy, but it's inspiring. Yeah. Or it's someone who's ill and then they magically either get better or find out they were never ill in the first place. So like a family member has been kind of, you know, causing their illness or whatever. And those are two of the main narratives um, when we think about disabled writing or disabled representation. Um, and that's problematic, but, but it's that idea, I think, that there needs to be some sort of narrative arc, there needs to be a kind of an ending, a resolution, and illness doesn't have that resolution, it doesn't have a kind of narrative arc, it doesn't end, it just goes on, or well, yeah. it does certainly when you have a chronic or life uh, long condition like we do. Um, and that's yeah, actually so... the first line of my current manuscript is this story has no ending. Oh, um, I love that. Because it just struck me, you know, so forcefully, as you say, that um, I think mainstream publishing and, and, and you know, non, non-disabled readers clearly make up the majority of who large publishers are thinking of when they think of their audiences. Yeah. Uh, and there's a real, I mean, I think it does readers a disservice, frankly. I think it assumes that people are incapable of levels of empathy that they are perfectly capable of reaching. Um, mm. You know, I'm not an axe murderer yet, but I found <laughs> crime and punishment quite a compelling read. Like, it's, <laughs> that's the point of fiction but also just writing in general is to is to enter someone else's world for a while and be able to get a sense of what it's like to be that person you know otherwise yeah. why do we do it exactly oh I so agree god I can't wait to read your book as well um <laughs> but yes there's this sort of I, I see it as um like almost there's three aspects to it, I think when it comes to talking about the importance of, of representation of any kind and first of all it's that thing where we've been talking about which is seeing sort of characters in books or representation in books that reflects your own experiences back but there's also a kind of power in reading books that aren't about you isn't there uh, which I guess you were sort of mentioning with with uh, the book you had read on the the Barbellion shortlist um and that is so important to I'm going to use the word educate it's not quite what I mean but to kind of educate people about what different experiences of the world are like and that is that is why I read it's why a lot of people read it's because it's the only real opportunity you get for that sort of very intimate insight into what other lives are like you just would never really experience that otherwise um and I think that's important so people kind of are expanded by literature I think that's the purpose of it really um and it makes those kind of experiences and voices more visible and also and this might be a bit of a stretch but it's sort of it's quite humanizing and I think often as disabled people we can feel quite othered quite excluded and literature and those stories and that kind of intimate insight into people's thought processes and experiences can reduce some of that and reduce maybe the the prejudice the discrimination the ignorance around disability as well um so I think, yeah, it's partly important to have that representation so we as readers can see ourselves, but it's also so people who aren't like us can see our experiences too. When it comes to disability and representation, what do you think publishers could do better and to help? I, this would be my final question to you, kind of wrap things up to put to both of you. Uh, well, I think one of the things that really interests me about publishing at the moment is there is a bit of a gap between 
what the kind of big five or mainstream publishers are willing to take a chance on and what actually gets published by smaller presses or indie presses. Um, so many of the, of the submissions that we had to the, to the prize this year were from these extraordinary small presses who are heroes. Um, and I think certainly in Britain, indie presses are, are doing an extraordinary job in terms of representation, not just of disability, but of age, of gender, of sexuality, of all this, all this stuff. But um, I think with the best and most thriving indie press scene you could possibly wish for, there are people that you're not reaching because there are people who will only read you know, the big books that get the broadsheet publications and or the broadsheet reviews and get put on the front table at Waterstones. And that's not to knock mainstream publishers or broadsheet reviews or even the front table at Waterstones. Those are all part of this kind of publishing ecosystem. But I do think at the moment, there seems to be this kind of reliance on smaller publishers or indie presses to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And I understand why big publishers don't because their job really is to make money. Um, but I think some bravery in, in the world of big publishing, some big five bravery would go a long way um, in terms of, of getting stories and narratives into a, a much wider readership. Um, and frankly, you know, some bravery from, from broadsheet reviewers as well. If you review something in the Times or the Telegraph, um, people pick that up they do so i would i would love to see that i mean that may very well be a pipe dream but it would be nice yeah i agree with that so much it's such a shame that a lot of the risk taking happens you know with independent publishers and not so much with the big five there's sort of change in the idea that disability is depressing that it's it's kind of an, a narrow niche subject um, and we need to shift towards seeing it as a universal experience you know illness and disability is everywhere we're all going to come into contact with it at some point in our lives whether it's for ourselves or for the people we know and our loved ones um, so I, I think I'd like to see a little bit more of that consideration of it as a kind of a universal topic that that any reader might be interested in mm -hmm.